0: Uh, it is good to be together with you uh, again uh, once more uh, during the month of December with the exception of Christmas uh, Eve we're going to be studying through some of the Psalms and so today we're going to pick up in Psalm 3 so go ahead and turn there uh, in the new year we'll return back to the pastoral epistles and pick up with uh, number two of those three books um, but I thought it'd be helpful to take a little bit of a break uh, from those and, and make our way through as many of the Psalms as we can. And we have an ambitious goal today, everyone, to do two psalms this evening. I know. Wow. Well, I think we can do it. I do think we can do it. Uh, the Eagles aren't on until 8:30, so we got a lot of time. And the Giants, well, you know, why, why bother? Uh, and so, I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That wasn't of the Lord. I apologize, um, but it is true. Uh, <laughs> So we are in Psalm chapter 3 to begin, and again, we're going to try and do Psalm 3 and 4, and these two psalms are very closely related to one another. Um, according to Jewish tradition, Hebrew tradition, uh, they, they basically, one runs into the other, uh, and so you kind of take them together. Uh, they are considered a, a morning psalm and an evening psalm, uh, you know, some of you have little devotionals and it'll give you a passage of scripture to read in the morning and another passage of scripture to read in the the evening. And that's how these psalms were approached by the Jewish people. Again, remember, all of the psalms are songs as well. They were songs that were sung by the Jewish people. And so we have an evening psalm and we have a morning psalm. Psalm 3 being the morning one and Psalm uh, 4 being the evening one. Look at uh, verse 5 of chapter 3, Psalm chapter 3, And notice what he says here. Again, this is a morning psalm. And so he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. He's talking about waking up in the morning and how the Lord woke him up, essentially, and allowed him to go down to sleep. And we'll talk about it, um, kind of protected him uh, throughout the evening. And so we have that song for the morning. Then look at Psalm 4, verse 8. And it says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the evening psalm as he lies, down, lies his head down, if you will, uh, knowing that the Lord will protect him. So we have a morning psalm and an evening psalm. And again, our goal today is to make it through both of these. So let's pray for the Lord's favor. Uh, favor. Charlie, can you open a door? Someone's trying to get in. Father, we want to thank you for the word of God. Lord, you've been so kind to us to give us this, uh, this, this book that too often uh, we neglect. And Lord, I, I think of your son who in the New Testament uh, declared that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Father, we want to honor that reality and we want to come and we want to sit uh, under the word of God and allow it to minister to our hearts to speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would take these ancient Psalms of David, Lord, 3,000 years old now, that have been ministering to the hearts of your children for thousands and thousands of years, and we pray that you would use your word to minister to our hearts this morning as well. Lord, we pray that you would draw us into your presence, that the light of your word would shed light on who you are, your goodness, your sovereignty, your kindness, your mercy, Lord, all of these things, and that we would leave from here with a greater sense of the God we serve. And as always, Lord, we pray for those that don't yet know you, Lord. May you open up their hearts to receive, Lord, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ that brings them into right relationship with you. And so bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Psalm 3 is one of those Psalms that begins with a a God-inspired title. Not all of them have that title there. If if you have your own Bible, you may see in dark black writing a title. That's what the publisher of your Bible put in there. But in some of the Psalms, we actually have a title to the Psalm that was put in there and is inspired by the Lord. And this is another one of those examples. And so as you can see here in Psalm three, it begins a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so this is the event which inspires this particular psalm, is that David is fleeing from Absalom, his son. If that's not an event you're familiar with, we're going to talk about it a little bit today. But I want to first just read through the entirety of Psalm 3. And it begins, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Well, if you've ever felt that the whole world was pressing in on you or the circumstances of life were doing so, then Psalm 3 is a psalm for you. In the case of David, that feeling was prompted by the military coup, a military coup that w- against David, King David, the greatest of kings of Israel, but a military coup that was raised against David, and uh, to make it even worse, it was instituted against him by his own son, his son whose name is Absalom that we see there in the title. Now, the account of that event is found in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And you can go back and you can look at it, and we're going to look at portions of it today, but it's found over four chapters, 2 Samuel chapter 15 through uh, chapter 18. But the seeds of the rebellion go back even further, and I think it's important for us to know what the seeds of that rebellion was. And it goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Again, I'm not going to give you every single detail. We got sucked away last week, didn't we? Um, So I'm going to stay as close as I can to Psalm 3 today. Um, But that being said, would you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15? And before I make it there, uh, I'm going to draw your attention to some of the passages uh, that lead up to it. Now we know that David was a man after God's own heart. It says that about him on multiple places in the scripture, 1 Samuel 13, Acts chapter 13. But even with that, we know that David was less than perfect and that he was not a sinless individual. And those of us that know a little bit of his background immediately you probably think, oh, yep, I remember the story of uh, David and Bathsheba, where David c- went into an adulterous affair with a woman who belonged to another man, the, the wife of another man, that man Uriah. And then he tried to hide that sin by having that man killed. David was not sinless, and David was not perfect. Well, there's another incident that doesn't as frequently come to mind. It's incidents, really, and that was the decision of David to take unto himself, as many of the kings around him did, many wives unto himself. And we learn that he took unto himself at least eight women to be his wives, and many of the times those women, uh, the taking of those women as wives was sort of uh, military alliances with foreign nations. And that's what all the nations around were doing. And David did that, even though the scripture was very clear that he was not to do that. David was not a sinless individual, and he was less than perfect. But 1 Chronicles 14 tells us that David took more wives in Jerusalem and he fathered more children. And that decision would be far more costly to David than he could have possibly ever imagined at the time. And one of the consequences of that decision is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And it's going to lead up to the events of 2 Samuel 15 through 18 that I uh, drew your attention to. The event in chapter 13, it involves two of David's children. It's going to eventually involve three of David's children. The first two, uh, one, one is another of David's sons. It's a guy by the name of Amnon. The other is a girl, a daughter of his, whose name is Tamar, David's son and his daughter, but they're not uh, born of the same two women. He has many wives here, so they're half-brother and sister. Now, you'll note, just put it off on the side here, this woman Tamar is the full sister of Absalom, the fellow that I mentioned a moment ago who's in the title of our psalm. Now, you can go back and you can read 1 Samuel 13 on your own, but let me give you the low lights of the story. Right, highlights we call them, but they're really lowlights of the passage. And unfortunately, it is this: it is that Amnon, Amnon, violated and sexually assaulted his half sister, this young lady Tamar. Second Samuel 13 it says, "But Amnon would not listen to Tamar, and being stronger than her, he violated her, and he lay with her." Now, sadly, King David's response to the violation of his daughter by his son was essentially no response. Verse 31, it tells us that he, I'm sorry, verse 21 of 2 Samuel, it tells us that when King David heard about this, he was very angry, okay? He was very angry, but what it does not say is that he did anything about it. He just sort of tucked it away, and he was mad at the circumstance. In fact, the Septuagint version, and the Septuagint version was after the Jews came back from uh, captivity, many of them didn't really know the Hebrew language much anymore. They had been in a foreign land for 70 years. And so a group of uh, scholars, 70 of them, that's where the number septuid, septa comes from, they put together a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. That's what the Septuagint is. And in the Septuagint, it adds to that passage when it says, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. It goes on and it adds there, but he did not grieve the spirit of his son. He did not want to grieve the spirit of his son, Abnon, because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. And so he he was angry at what his son did, but he didn't do anything about it. And as we keep making our way through Second Samuel, it becomes very clear that Absalom, if my dad's not going to do anything about it, I'm going to do something about it. That sin of David taking all of these women to be his wives and having kids and all that sort of stuff, it comes back and it bites him in his administration and in his life, really. And we learn that Absalom determines he's going to do something about Amnon. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 13. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, he said, Let not, my lord, suppose they have killed all the young men, for Amnon alone is dead. And it goes on. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Absalom kills, eventually, Amnon. I'm skipping a little in the story, in the story, but Absalom would kill him. But notice what it says there, from the day, for by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day that he violated his sister. Now, it also seems that from the day that Amnon violated his sister, that Absalom was done with his father. He lost all respect for his father, thinking probably something like, what kind of a father, what kind of a king allows something like this to happen? And that he had in so many ways written off his dad. He was done with his dad. Chapter 13 goes on to explain how he then went into hiding. Absalom went into hiding. And how after an undefined period of time, years perhaps, we don't know. But after a, a lengthy period of time, how he was able to come back to Jerusalem. But he was not able to have any contact with David. There's a break in the relationship, and David's like, look, you can come back to Jerusalem, but I, I have nothing to do with you. I'm not, you're not allowed to come into my presence, and Absalom uh, was bothered by that. Why am I here then? If you don't really want to make up with me, if you—you you want to, this is my fault? You should have dealt with Amnon, not me, and now you're keeping me on the outside, and, and Abs, am, Absalom, too many A names, Absalom is getting more and more and more frustrated and bothered with his father. It tells us in 2 Samuel 14 that he comes back to Jerusalem. He's brought back to Jerusalem, and he doesn't see his dad for two years. He doesn't mend this relationship for two years, and all during that time he's stewing, and that's where the seeds of the rebellion of chapter 15 and all the way through 18 occur. Soon Absalom is going to be creating those circumstances. Now, I ask you to turn to 2 Samuel. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. In 2 Samuel 15, 1, you see the first thing that Absalom begins to do. He has a plan. He's not just going to go in and try and kill David and think, you know, that this will all work itself out. He has a plan to raise up a group of people, a large group of people around him. Later, we're told it's as many as 12,000 people that gather around him. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. It says, now, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. He begins to establish kind of the illusion that I already am a king. I'm a crown prince. Look at I have secret service agents around me and parades of people wherever I go. I'm somebody important. He creates sort of the circumstances. If you look at verses two through six of that chapter, you begin to see that he very subtly, very subtly, got to be careful here, He very subtly convinces people that David wasn't such a good king and how much better off the people would be if he were the king, he being Absalom. It's interesting, the scheme that he employs. Look at verse 2. It says there something. It says, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate, the gate into the city, which, again, is where sort of the official business of the city occurred, court cases and so on. And it says, and when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, oh, where are you from? What city are you from? And when the guy would say, or the person would say, well, your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, oh, see, your claims are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Just subtly, this isn't such a good king. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Just not so subtly, I would be better. Verse 5, and whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, and Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel, and all that now was needed was the right time to strike. Look down to verse 7. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. He is going to go away, but not to make some offering to God. That's where he's going to gather all of his... Uh, his army and he's going to come back and he's going to attack. Four years later he's doing this thing in the city gate where he is stealing the hearts of the people. Four years plus the two years that he was in Jerusalem he wasn't able to have contact with David plus the, all of those months or years that he was stewing after having killed the man that sexually assaulted his sister because his father wouldn't do anything about it. And so you put it all together, we're talking about seven, eight, maybe ten years of time that he is planning for this rebellion. And he is, it is stewing within him, and he's gathering the people, and he's developing his plan, and he's going to come, and he's going to attack David, the king of Israel. That happens in verse 10. Verse 10 of 2 Samuel 15. I'm going to read a little bit here. It says, But Absalom, he sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. You might be interested in noting that Ahithophel has a granddaughter that we're told of in the Bible. And her name is Bathsheba. And Ahithophel is not fond of what went down with Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband. And it'll come back. It always comes back. Verse 13, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. And so the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him. Look down now to verse 30 of that chapter. But David went up to the ascent, up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, mourning. And they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness, it continues into chapter sixteen. Chapter sixteen begins by telling us a little bit of an account of a fellow by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the son of Solomon. David had, um, yeah, Solomon, Jonathan. Excuse me, Jonathan. David had shown kindness to him, uh, and now it appears—it's not true—but it appears that Mephibosheth turns on David. As far as David is concerned, it's true because that's what he's been told and informed. So now he's carrying that weight. This guy that I showed this unusual kindness and mercy to, he turned on me too? And then it picks up in verse 5. And it says, Now when King David came to Behurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David. King David, this guy, he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out. This is the king, the beloved king of Israel. And this is what they're yelling at him. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And again, you remember, David, he didn't do anything to the house of Saul. He had numerous opportunities to do something to the house of Saul, and he didn't. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. I can't help but think how quickly things have changed for David. He's forced out of his kingdom. He's running for his life. Talks about him running barefoot which speaks probably to the mourning, but nonetheless, get out and get out quickly. He's being mocked by those he passes by. His own son has rebelled against him. There are other passages of scriptures that make it clear the desire of his son was to see his dad killed, not just like, I want to take the throne and put you in a nice prison somewhere, but actually to kill his father. A number of David's key officials had turned against him, People that he had gone out of his way to be kind to and show mercy to, like Mephibosheth, he's under the impression that apparently they've turned against him. This is a very sad and dark and grievous day for David. And it's from that experience that David writes Psalm 3. And so he begins Psalm 3 by saying this: O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no, no salvation for him in God. And then we have this word that's written there, and it's the word Selah. Now, the word Selah, it appears 71 times in the book of Psalms, and it appears another three or four times elsewhere in the Old Testament. And the exact meaning of the term is unknown, but it's typically associated with a psalm or a song. And it's commonly understood to refer to sort of a break in the singing. For us, it might be a portion where we stop the words, but there still continues, look at me, like I know what I'm doing, uh, that there continues to be sort of this instrumental that is going on. And it gives you an opportunity to stop and to think about the words that were just expressed. And so the understanding of this word selah is to stop and think about that for a moment. We have here this opening expression, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying that there is no help for him in God. David says, stop and think about that for a second. Think about the circumstances where David was at the highest of high and the people loved him and sung songs about him and now he's running for his life barefoot out of Jerusalem and people are mocking him and throwing stones at him and his own son has come against him. Thousands upon thousands are going to come against him. We will learn. But all that time has passed. All of that good times with his popularity. And here is his son Absalom gathered against him. And then there's this guy Shimei. Oh, Shimei, I I don't like him. I I read him and I'm thinking, I feel like David's men. Can I run him through with a sword? I just wish somehow we could. What a dirtball. Forgive me for my language. But even worse for David, I think, than all of these things, nobody's singing my songs, this guy's mocking me, my son, you know, all this stuff. I think even worse than all of this would be the self-condemnation that David almost certainly would have felt. This looks, this event, it looks very much like the prophecy that was made against him when his sin with Bathsheba was exposed by the prophet Nathan. If you forget that, that's the story where after about a year, so the story with David, uh, he goes into Bathsheba, she conceives, her husband is off at war, David comes up with a plan, oh my gosh, she's pregnant, comes up with a plan, I'll bring the husband back from war, you know, I need your advice, your counsel, you know, thank you so much, great advice. Go home to your wife, you know, enjoy a nice meal and all that and so on. And then we can just tell everyone that he got her pregnant and, and we'll, we'll get by, we'll get through all of this. Well, he has more character than David. And he says, look, my men are out there fighting. I can't go home and have a nice meal and all that that goes with that and so on. Uh, and so he never goes home. Oh, man. Now David has to come up with plan B and plan B is put – Uriah, right in the center of battle, and then everybody pull back you know, without him knowing, and he'll die out there. And then, this is, it just gets me. This, then he feels so bad for this poor lady. One of my men died, you know, fighting for me and for our country. I will take his wife as my wife, and I will care for her the rest of her days. And people are like, David is so wonderful. Well, he wasn't wonderful. And David thought he got away with it. And for a year goes by, he writes about this in one of the later Psalms, he writes about how keeping his sin within him, how it just ate at him, at his bones, it talks about how they ached, and and so on. Well, one night, the door, knock on the door, and there's a prophet there, and the prophet's name is Nathan. And Nathan comes to David and begins to talk to David, and he tells David this story. He says, there once was this guy, and he had you know, many, many sheep and all this kind of stuff. And someone comes to his house, and he's got to provide for him. He's got to go out to the field, take one of the sheep, kill it, you know, so this guy can have a nice meal. He's obligated to do it, to be a nice, good Jewish guy. And he doesn't want to do it. So he goes to the neighbor's house where there's this little poor guy. And that guy only has one little lamb. And that little lamb really isn't like a, a lamb. It's like a pet. And it's in the house with the people, and they all love them, and the kids, you know, they named them and all this stuff. And that man orders that that little lamb be taken, cooked up, and served to this guy here. And then he says to David, Nathan the prophet, he says, David, what do you think should be done with a guy that would do something like that? And David says, kill him. (laughs) Kill him? Like, holy cow. You know, David's like, This is horrible. It's terrible. And Nathan then says to him, you're the man. That's exactly what you did but on a grander and worse scale. You're the man, David. And David immediately, it all comes crashing down. And the the wonderful thing is he confesses his sin in that instance. Yes, I've been exposed. God has revealed. I can't hide it anymore. But rather than trying to keep hiding it, or well, that's it then. I'm leaving the church then if they don't like whatever. David confesses it as such, and he begins to get the cleansing and the washing. But there are still consequences for sin even though we may have the cleansing of God and the washing of God and the forgiveness of God there we do still reap that which we sow and Nathan then will go on to say to David he says now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife thus says the Lord behold I will raise up evil against you, notice, out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. I didn't share this earlier, but one of the actions of Absalom, when he comes into Jerusalem, David is fleeing out of Jerusalem, is Absalom sexually assaults 10 of David's concubines, and he does so on the flat roof of the palace, out in the sun. And so on top of all that is going on, I think we can safely add the emotion of self-condemnation that David would have been experiencing as he's running for his life thinking, this is all my fault. I brought it all on by my terrible decisions and my sin. And then you get the people yelling that there is no help for him in God. Not that God couldn't help him, but that God wouldn't help him. Why would God help someone like you? Many were saying that David would find no help from God, and no doubt David is struggling with believing that lie, that he would not be able to turn to God. And then he adds, think about that, say law. Well, the reality is God had not forsaken David. And as the psalm goes on, sometime that night, as David fled from Absalom, he reminded his heart of that which he no doubt had trouble holding on to. And that's verse 3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory, and you're the lifter of my head. Sometime that night, David lifted his voice to heaven, cries aloud to the Lord. Look at verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. He cries aloud and wonderfully the Lord answers him. Selah. Think about that. That here's a guy that brought this all on himself. But he could turn to the Lord, look to the Lord, cry to the Lord. And the Lord would answer him. And so a million others, and I'm sure it felt that way to David. A million others might say what they want to say and do what they want to do to David. But David knew that the Lord was And that the Lord would be a shield about him. And though his head was a bit downcast uh, in all of this, that God would lift his head. You know, you think of like a little kid that comes in their shame and the mom or dad who just sort of by the chin sort of lifts their head and has them look him in the eye or her in the eye. The Lord would be the lifter of his head. Though many were saying that this, David knew that God was his shield. Even if many others couldn't, or they couldn't dissuade David. David's confidence was in the God, his God of love and his God of help. And he knew that God would lift his head and be his shield. Notice again, he's not praying here that God would be his shield. He's acknowledging that God is his shield. And the entire mood of the psalm, it changes in verses 3 and 4. David, he gets his ears hearing what people are saying. He gets his eyes seeing what he is going through off of his enemies, and instead he redirects his ears and his eyes on the Lord and on God. And he focuses attention to what God's small voice is saying. And inspired by these great and true truths, God has forgiven me. God has pronounced a cleansing. God has washed me. God still calls me his own. God will not abandon me. Inspired by all those great and true truths, David cries aloud And as it says in verse 4, the Lord answers. Think about that, he says. Verse 5, he says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people." Now think about all we read in the beginning here. David running for his life, people mocking him, you know, they're coming in, they're pressing in on him. And look at verse 5, I laid down and slept. Could you imagine? Trying to sleep in those conditions. The fear, the worry, the anxiety, the frustration, the anger, the condemnation, all of those things, and being able to sleep. Now, again, look at the title. The title of it, it says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from his his son Absalom this wasn't a psalm he wrote 10 years later about the time he fled this was while he was fleeing and how remarkable that he was able to be at such peace that even when the whole world was falling apart around him that he was able to be at enough peace that he could lay himself down and sleep you may never encounter your son trying to throw you off the throne but no doubt you encounter circumstances that seem to be pressing in on you where the stress of a circumstance or the stress of your bills or whatever it might be these things that are coming against you coming against you and coming against you you can have peace even in the midst of those circumstances if David could have peace when his son was coming to kill him with 10,000 of his friends you can have peace for whatever circumstances you find yourself in And we notice here, this wasn't a sleep that came from exhaustion. So it's not like, look, the guy sat down for a minute and he just zonked out because he was so tired from running and all of that stuff. It was a sleep that came from a a place of trust that was in him. God gave him this sleep. It came about as a result of a conscious decision on David's part to entrust himself to the Lord. The Lord is my shield. That's where his sleep came from, is that he can entrust himself to God. I read one commentator, he said it this way, the sweetest kind of sleep it is, it's a gift of God to those who trust in him in the the midst of life's most distressing circumstances. David could place his trust in God and rest. He goes on in verse 5, he says, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Both of those are evidences that God's hand continued to be with David. It was such a blessing that despite all the circumstances, he could sleep. Waking was another great blessing. There were so many that were wondering if David was going to survive the night. And yet here he is, he's waking again the next morning. And he has a restful night, and how important that is sometimes, just go take a nap. You'll be better. Take a nap first, and then you'll deal with your problems. David wakes ready, fresh, for whatever the day ahead of him. He says in verse 6, I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Absalom has a crowd, but David had the Lord. And one with the Lord is a majority, we know, in the Scripture. A thousand years before it was written, David already knew this truth. This is what Paul would write later on, that if God is for us, Who can be against us? And knowing that truth, David could rest. Knowing that truth, David could rise up and face what this day ahead of him was going to be. And so he prays again. He prayed in verse 4. He prays again now in verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. The grace and mercy that sustained David through the night That wasn't going to do for the day ahead of him. He'd have to come back to God again and say, Lord, now I need your grace and mercy for the circumstances that are in front of me this day. He cries once more for God to be his salvation, which I think is so significant because remember back in verse 2 where it says there is no salvation for him in God. That's what the enemies were saying. And David experienced God saving, and he's crying again, God, do it again. Jeremiah, the prophet, he instructed us that the mercies of God are new every morning. How wonderful that is. And it's the wise individual that comes to God every morning to make those mercies his own. I think the passage is too good to ignore. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. David came back the next morning looking to God for those mercies. We need a fresh supply of God's mercies. Every morning coming back into his word, reminding ourselves who it is, reminding ourselves that he's in control, reminding ourselves that he's sovereign, and let that just sort of wash over us so that we can walk in those realities or in that reality. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It didn't belong to David's superior army it didn't belong to his intellect. It didn't belong to his strategy. David doesn't wake up the next morning and now say, all right, I, let me get my situation together here. David says salvation belongs to the Lord. If he was going to survive this coup that was coming against him, it was going to be because the Lord had intervened. That's where his salvation would come from. And, and the same is true for you and I. Again, whatever our circumstances we find ourselves in, those hopeless circumstances that we feel i'm never going to get through this we give it over to the lord and he takes us through it david i love this knowing what god had done in his life that provides david confidence to look for him what he needs god to do in his present and so i recommend to all of us that we spend some time meditating thinking about the myriad of ways in which God has shown himself strong to us in our lives take a little journal something like that piece of paper your computer open up a file or whatever and just kind of go back through your life over the myriad of ways in which God has shown himself strong on your behalf in which he has shown himself faithful in which he has established who he is and what he will do for you in your life as a child of God We learned this in our midweek study this week, 1 Chronicles 16. It says, remember the wondrous works that God has done, his miracles and the judgments that he he has uttered. What David does is he remembers all of the ways in which God has previously shown himself strong, and then based on that, he says, Lord, do it again. Do it again, Lord. Psalm 3. I don't know about Psalm 4, everybody. Well, it's impossible. (laughs) So that's the psalm they would sing in the morning. Psalm 4, they would sing in the evening. We'll come back next Sunday and we'll look at Psalm 4 together. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, when the circumstances that come against us press in, it's pretty hard for us to, to realize and recognize, well, this isn't as bad as what David went through. The circumstances we're facing are the circumstances we're facing, and sometimes they're just so heavy and so hard, and they feel like they're going to overwhelm us, and they feel like they're going to destroy us. And we feel like there is no help for us in God even, and we struggle with that and wrestle with that. But Lord, like David, thou, O Lord, are a shield for me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. Lord, may that truth, I pray, Lord, even as a result of considering these things today, may that truth win over in our heart and silence the doubts and the fears and the anxieties and the struggles the reality of who we are in you would win out, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, uh, I'm I'm grateful that David could put to pen, Lord, uh, where his heart was in these things, and it is an incredible gift to us. And so we thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.